This is episode 26, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey from 1991. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. With us today, we have our Bill and Ted expert completing the trifecta, Kara O'Regan. Hello, Kara. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm really excited to talk about Bogus Journey. I was so excited to watch this because, like I said on the other two podcasts, you know, I've never seen any of the Bill and Ted, so it's all new to me. And after the semi-chore that was the TV show, this brings us right back in. And, you know, it's essentially like a 70-minute movie, sort of. Like, they barely have enough story, Mm -hmm. but it's just just so much fun. It is so much fun. And it just is the exact opposite of the first movie, but still equally as weird and wonderful and good. Yeah, guys, I do not remember this movie being quite as crazy insane as I noticed this time. I love this movie. Uh, I saw it in theaters. My dad took me like he took me to see the first one. He didn't like it very much. He thought it was kind of dumb, but I loved it. And this does what a sequel should do, right? Like it pretty much abandons mostly the conceit of time travel and puts Bill and Ted in a completely different scenario, like something I never would have imagined. <laughs> I don't know how these guys came up with this. It, it is insane. I actually read while I was researching that the plot is a blend of Terminator and a movie that Kiss made called Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, which I have never seen. But I guess that had pretty seriously influenced the plot of this one. And Terminator 2 came out the same month as this movie. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. And this movie also at least takes elements from The Seventh Seal, the classic film where, you know, the knight plays death in a game of chess. So there's a little bit of that later. But what I was going to say earlier is that Mike, who'd you say? Your dad didn't like the movie? Yeah. You know who else didn't like the movie, really, was director of the first film, Stephen Herrick, who was like, why should I do a parody movie of what was originally a parody movie? He thought that the first one was silly enough, and then this one he thought was just too far, and he that's why he didn't come back, because he just didn't see the need to parody a parody. At least those are like his words, or some version of that. That's strange, because I see this as almost less of a parody than the first one in weird ways. I know some of what they're referencing here, but it feels just as sincere. And if I'm not mistaken, we have the same writers, right? The creators of the characters Mm -hmm. wrote this one. So it's kind of odd to see that the only one who wasn't really on board is the director. And I don't know. I really like the look for the most part, aside from the very beginning, the future look. I like the look of the rest of the film. I think it's shot really well. It's really dynamic and it looks really great. You know, it's short. It's very trim, but it works really well. The acting is really good, and I think the new director here did a good job. What I thought was really funny from the beginning is, like, one of the first lines in the movie is that they say this is the second crucial turning point in their destiny, and it's just like, oh, you know, all that TV show is either not important or just non-canon or whatever. Like, I guess, in a way, it's like, okay... If you ever wondered from the first movie, how do we get 600 or whatever years in the future where these guys are gods in the society and, like, music is this crucial thing, this movie sort of, in a weird way, sets out to answer that question? It's almost like if the third movie happens, and I don't think there's really been any development since we recorded either of the other two podcasts, it almost feels like the third movie should be or could be set in the 2600s and sort of go from there, because I feel like the story has kind of been told 
of like how I mean there's more to tell obviously as we talked about with the TV show that you could sort of do whatever you want but it feels like the path of getting society to be where it is in 2600 the path is illuminated like we know how we get from point A to point B sort of because of Bogus Journey yeah, you know, I wasn't expecting that either when I first saw this movie. I don't recall any knowledge of what this film was about. I recall just going in cold and being quite surprised in the direction the movie goes and everything. And definitely at the end where it's the battle of the bands and that's where they contact the entire world through their music for the first time. You're right. Where can you really go after this? I don't really know. But it's kind of funny that now Bill and Ted, they die in this movie. They come back much like Jesus and it's like they're bigger than Jesus at the <laughs> end of the movie they're like the new Beatles I don't want to say they wrote themselves into a corner or anything but like hopefully they will continue with the continuity that they've set up and like the Reaper will be back and all of this well because by the end of the movie you know in 15 seconds of screen time they spend 18 months I guess getting married and having kids and going through intensive guitar training so it'd almost be weird to have another movie in the 90s now that they're these guitar virtuosos who were good to the point where Steve Vai does the guitar solo for the movie you know what I mean they're no longer screw-ups like they're sort of their family men they are incredibly good at what they do like it sort of feels like this is like a natural conclusion to their story and i guess whenever you're gonna have a sequel come out 25 years after the previous movie you can sort of open it up to be whatever this feels like the bridge to where the society is and this is like it feels like a complete story now like i definitely get what you're saying but the end credit sequence takes us up to a point which i think the headlines that we see during that time could actually just be 25 years worth of headlines. They could pick up right after that point. I absolutely agree. We'll get to it when we get to the end of the podcast, perhaps, and we talk about those credits, but we could have the movie start with them going to Mars, right? Yeah. Station. <laughs> so Station is just... I feel like other movies have done... Well, I guess it's just like Hodor, right? Like Station is Hodor in this movie? Like Station just means whatever they want it to mean. Oh, yeah. There's been characters like him throughout history, right, where they just know one word and it basically means anything you need it to based on the inflection, whatever. It's he's like Chewbacca, right? Like yeah. instead of a growl, he just says station. But not just station says station. The evil Bill and Ted also use station like as a affirmative and like in a few other situations. Yeah, it's ingrained into the culture mm -hmm. because of its association with Bill and Ted. Like, they don't explain what Station is until almost probably an hour in, but I just wrote down, like, Station? Like, what is... Because they just start using it, just like, oh, I don't know if that's, like, a person or, like, a thing. I also wondered if that was, like, 90s slang that I never knew, you know? Because, like, they use bogus and radical and babes and all these words that are still around but people don't really use anymore. And I was like, did I just miss out completely on Station? But no, by the end of the movie, you know Station means whatever. The dude who can make one word mean anything! Station! Station. Station! Station! Station. Station. One thing I do want to point out while we're talking about words is at one point in the movie, I think when they first get to hell, they're seeing their own hell, right? They're seeing Colonel Oates, and they're seeing the grandma, and they're seeing the Easter Bunny. Keanu calls the devil a fag, and I'm just like, oh... I forgot that this was like a time when that was like an okay insult. Yeah. In the first movie, when they're sword fighting, funny enough, they hug each other and then they call each other fags also. And then in this movie, evil Bill and Ted also call them. But I thought that was sort of the reverse, saying like, no, now that's, they're the evil characters. 
they use that word. So it was a little jarring later when they're in hell. That's the sweet Ted. Like, that's the Ted that we love, and to have him use it. Not like I didn't like the character anymore. You know, that's just like a sign of the times. It was just like, oh, like that's, it just feels now just jarring. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't been jarring for very long. I mean, it seems so jarring now, but five, ten years ago even, it wouldn't stand out as much right. as it does now. It's the only thing, looking back, that is like any type of stain on Bill and Ted. I would say, however, that the Bill and Ted universe, the way that it treats women, not great. It's slightly better in this movie than in the original, but not great. Well, I feel like that's indicative. I think we, we noticed that during Cage Club and sort of, I think it's less so in Keanu Club so far. 80s and 90s movies in general just didn't treat women very well. Yeah, there are plenty of movies today that still don't. I think the other issue is there's just really no room for a lot of other characters in this film. I mean, we have two sets of Bill and Ted, right? Well, <laughs> really, by the end, characters. we have three sets. Well, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> and then we have three sets, and so really the only returning women are the princesses and Missy, and Missy was never much of a positive role model. <laughs> and the princesses are nothing characters. They become literal damsels in distress, and they have to rescue the princess like a video game at the end. It works while you're watching it, but if you're going to analyze it, yeah, there's, I suppose they could have found something more for them to do. They are good drummers and keyboardists. Well, there you, you know, go. They do say they are the best parts of their band. Yeah, yeah. And at least they actually like have dialogue in this one. If you think back to Excellent Adventure, not only do they barely say anything, same thing with Missy. I mean, the Joan of Arc character says nothing at all. <laughs> she yeah. has zero lines. They do even beat up a woman off screen in heaven in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know exactly how hard they were thinking while making this. Right. Well, they're, they're not only beating up the woman, though. They beat up two guys, too. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, you know, they're beating up more dudes than women. But also at the same time, they really only add one new character. And I feel like if they made death a woman, it would be worse. There's really only, for most part of this movie, three characters. There's Bill and Ted and Death. So instead of like Bill and Ted and Rufus, so it's not like they're really, you know, they have all these opportunities to bring in new women and they don't. It's just they're not really interested in bringing in new characters at all. It's a step up from Excellent Adventure, but there's not really a lot of opportunities. Because if you bring in a woman as death, it's just like, oh, like the ultimate nag. Or, you know what I mean? Like, just there's so many things that people, like, in terms of sexist writing or whatever, you could sort of point to in that regard. Yeah. And actually, there is a new character played by Pam Greer, who is a pretty pivotal character for the Bill and Ted characters in the film. Yeah, she's one of those pivotal but sort of minor screen time characters with yeah. a major <laughs> twist attached right. as yeah. well. The whole but, thing is that um, one, just... one of the women in the movie is not even a woman. It's just... Right. It's <laughs> so there is that also. Getting back to the death character, what I liked about him is, he, is it him? Like, he seems very androgynous, you know what I'm saying? Kind of like he's just this otherworldly being in a way. It could almost have been Tilda Swinton playing him or something. <laughs> I would pay so much money to see that movie. At one point, we were going to do Tilda for a podcast. I would love to see Tilda. I wonder if Tilda's ever played Death. I feel like she played Orlando. And if you know the story of Orlando, it's this character who switches back from being a man to a woman every couple of decades and has like an exceptionally long lifespan and has sort of weaved itself throughout an alternate history. She was in something called Friendship's Death. But I mean, she she would tef- definitely be a great Death character. So if we ever write a movie and write Death into it, we got to cast Tilda Swinton. 
please do. I'd <laughs> love to see that. But it's amazing that Death is even a main character in a Bill and Ted movie. A, it's just bizarre, but when you kind of think about it, it's pretty metal. I feel like whatever goes on, they try and just keep it within the world of rock and roll, or at least rock and roll reflective of the 90s. I feel like this movie borrows a lot from the Divine Comedy by Dante. When they're in hell, one of them says something to the effect of like, hey man, our album covers lied to us. Yeah, it does fit in perfectly with who they are and what they like. Apparently, one thing that I read said that studio executives at the time were very much against the idea of Bill and Ted dying, but the screenwriters were just like, this is too good of an idea to not do, so we're just going to do it anyway. You know, obviously they eventually won out. Originally, the name of this movie was Bill and Ted Go to Hell, because Bogus Journey, I didn't know what to expect. I was sort of expecting another time travel movie, just because that's kind of what they're known for. And there is time travel in this movie. They only time travel off screen. Like at the very end, they kind of rehash the end of the first movie a little bit in terms of like, well, we're time traveling, so we're able to put a cage around you and stuff like that. But it's not really time travel at all. It's just they are killed by evil Bill and Ted. They go to hell. They play death in a bunch of a series of board games and then they come back build robot versions of themselves and defeat the evil us's so i mean there's no time travel it's just in bill and ted logic a logical next step of where they should go yeah i think instead of traveling through time the whole thing is traveling throughout the afterlife Mm-hmm. Yeah, time travel is just sort of there to remind you it's part of the universe. In the beginning, there's this guy in the future who hates Bill and Ted and the whole new society, and he vows to go back and destroy their entire existence, you know, and change the future. Once he basically sends his robot versions of Bill and Ted back, and they get to the present day, that's it for the time traveling. There's really nothing else to do with it. It's not what the movie's going to go with, you know. It's going to do this whole afterlife thing, which turns out for me a pretty exciting adventure and yet I know they have to call it a bogus journey because it's the opposite of an excellent adventure but it's still a lot of fun to watch them on it's especially bogus because they get killed so I mean like there's nothing more bogus than dying going to hell and I would say even without time travel life and death are so linked to time whether it be running out of time or the death figure across cultures is often portrayed with like an hourglass the sands of time that sort of thing And what I also like about Death in this portrayal, especially toward the end of the movie, after they Melvin him, after they give him a wedgie, then defeat him at board games, he sort of becomes, not like their slave, but like he has to follow them around, and so they go back to San Dimas, and we get sort of like the first movie where we have Joan of Arc leading an exercise class, or Napoleon bowling. We have Death in a hardware store trying to find the more efficient scythe. And just, like, it's so great. That's, I think, something that Bill and Ted do better than a lot of other things, is just taking these characters from one context and just dropping them in something else completely different and still, like, thinking of, like, what would they be doing if they're just killing time in a hardware store? Yeah, and I think the writers do a good job in this movie of, dare I say, subverting our expectations to a degree. Like, we'll get similar scenes and scenarios, but they'll end with a different twists to them so this time when their doubles come they'll assume because they've met themselves before that they should trust them and they're telling the truth and that they're from the future and by the time they find out that they're evil robot versions of themselves it's too late and they're being thrown off a cliff from an episode of star trek (laughs) out in the desert 
Yeah, and the death character in this movie actually borrows very heavily from death tropes throughout film history. Like, there is the chest with death that comes from the seventh seal, but that trope dates back to, like, the 4th century BCE in Greek mythology. There are examples of playing a game with death in exchange for a longer life, and then if you lose, you face very dire consequences, which in this case is an eternity in hell, but... The kind of twist on this in this universe is that death is a really sore loser. He loses the first game and that's best three out of five and then five out of seven and it kind of escalates from there. There's a few other Grim Reaper slash death figure tropes, one of which is don't fear the Reaper. Ted, what? Don't fear the Reaper. I heard that. And even death in the hardware store is very much a kind of like death takes a holiday sort of thing, taking death out of the context that he's usually in and placing him in this other context, which makes it really funny. Usually in the death takes a holiday trope, there's always a consequence to death not doing his job, whether it be the world gets overrun with souls or something like that. We don't actually see consequences of death taking a holiday. At the end of the movie where we see that he's gone off to start a solo career and all of that sort of stuff, but although I have not actually read the comic book series, in the comic book series the death character actually does face a host of consequences for taking a holiday from his day job. What I like about death is that he's never lost like every time that people go to hell i guess they they have the opportunity to play him in a series of games to win their soul back or whatever he's like i've never lost and then not only does he lose but he gets swept by like the two biggest dopes that have ever graced film that's what makes them lovable they're just idiots but they beat him in Battleship, they beat him in Clue, they beat him in Twister, and they beat him in the Electric Super Bowl game, the football game. It's just, I like that he's never lost, but here he's just like, he can't do anything right. Yeah. It's the best. It is. I almost wonder if he just always expects to play chess with people that have died <laughs> and just never played these games before in his life. He gets kind of close with Battleship, but he's way off with Clue and Twister and the football game. <laughs> There's no winning for death. But the... <laughs> you played very well, Death. Especially with your totally heavy death robes. Don't patronize me. Oh, whatever, dude. She got a lot to learn about sportsmanship. This way. I also love how he becomes their bass player. That's amazing. Like, he's part of the band at the end of this. And he even has this line where he's like, you know, I'm just a guy with a job. Which makes me think that as soon as he left the afterlife, someone was reassigned to be the Grim Reaper. And, you know, at least well, until sure. he came back. <laughs> yeah, and that's another pretty common death trope is the death figure as, like, civil servant or bureaucrat. And the bureaucracy of the afterlife is like a whole other thing. We actually see some of that in heaven, less so in hell and less so for death. But he does seem kind of like a begrudging civil servant who is just kind of like annoyed by his job. I feel like by the end of the movie, they're just friends because I feel like it's sort of, you know, a nice little reprieve from his job as that. If he is sort of a civil servant, you know, I'm sure that he, I'm sure that taking people's souls isn't exactly what he wants to do for all of eternity. But, you know, because he loses to them, he's able to go to heaven, he's able to go to earth, he's able to play in a band. I mean, he gets to sort of mix things up a little bit. So good for you, Death. Yeah, he's found some friends. He's become accepted and <laughs> he's happy now. 
Right, because he's so used to people being so afraid of him. It's like a completely different vibe for him to like hang out and play bass. Not only are they not afraid of him, they're so not afraid of him that they just have the idea to give him a wedgie, you know, to Melvin him. Which, do we know where the word Melvin comes from? Did I miss that? Um, it's actually a specific type of wedgie. It's oh. a front-facing wedgie as opposed to pulling oh. your underwear up out of the back of your pants. It's pulling the underwear up out of the front of the pants, which I did not realize that that was a specific type of wedgie. Yeah, because when I heard it, I thought it was just a regional thing, you know, like yeah. people on one coast say wedgie, people on another say Melvin. <laughs> this is a California movie, so that's what they went with. Yeah. Well, the Wikipedia page for wedgie actually breaks down several different types of wedgie. You have the Melvin, you have the atomic wedgie. There's a whole world that I didn't even realize. <laughs> they get to death and they say, like, that guy looks familiar. It's like, oh, it's the Grim Reaper, dude. And then they say, how's it hanging, death? And then they're so determined to defeat the evil usses, to defeat the robot Bill and Ted, that they need to get away from death, so they give them the Melvin, and then they just they just move on. Dude, we gotta ditch this guy. Definitely. But how? Melvin. <clears throat> Excuse us, dude, but your shoes are untied. I can't believe we just Melvin death. Yeah. Let's just hope he doesn't catch up with us. It's only when they realize that the only way I guess they can escape from hell is with the Grim Reaper that they go back to him. He's such a non-threatening role for them. I guess, really, like, you're in hell already. What's he going to do to you? Yeah, well, even before they get to hell, they ditch the Reaper on the side of the road, and they possess Ted's dad and his cop partner, right? And they start, (laughs) like, explaining what happened. And he's like, dudes, my son's been totally murdered by robots from the future, bro. And they're like, this isn't working. We need to try something else. Just keep staying in those bodies and go rescue the girls. So it's kind of funny how they have these brilliant ideas, but then they're so quick to sort of give up and move on. And then they go over to Missy's, and instead of possessing her, she's having a seance? Like, that was out of nowhere, right? There's no setup whatsoever from the previous movie that she's into crystals and she's a medium. No, but that seems very consistent with her character anyway. (laughs) We skipped over the fact that she is now married to Ted's dad. It was presented in such a low-key way that I was like, all right, that makes sense. And then they're like, (laughs) I think they say in the movie, because it's to people like me, you know, who I just watched the first movie like a month and a half ago. Bill says, hey, Ted, I can't believe that Missy divorced my dad and married your dad. She's like, oh, right. It's just it feels so natural and like just exactly what it was that it makes perfect sense with her character. Yeah, which is interesting because her character was so kind of small and shallow that it's just interesting that they were able to make all of these different choices about her character that seemed actually totally consistent. One thing that's kind of amazing about having a character like Missy in your film is you have this character that you can be anything you want at any time, you know? So it's like, oh, I need her to be a rocket scientist for a scene, or I need her to... Suddenly, she's always been into plants, so she's found the antidote or whatever. But I wonder if it was like a joke about the use of characters in screenplays. 
I could be thinking too hard well, about I, it. Well, it seems like, and it's not really through any fault or anything that she's doing, really. I think it's more Bill and Ted's spirits being in the room, but, like, she's kind of successful at being, like, a medium. Like, she channels their spirits. She's got a whole group, including, I think the two dudes in there are the two screenwriters of the movie. Like, yeah. they're in the movie at least once, at least there. I think she's also reading from, like, a Stephen King book or something that's masked to be some satanic ritual, whatever. But I was like, oh, Missy found something she's good at, aside from just being, like, the trophy wife. She can sort of summon the dead, or, like, you know, at least, even if she's not summoning the dead, she has the power to expel them from the room, which is pretty cool. I feel the spirits have arrived! How's it going, new age <gasps> Spirits! Can you hear me? Yeah, they get straight up exercised, right? <laughs> it's an exorcism on Bill and Ted, and they're funneled down into the void. That's actually what sends them to hell. So, like, up to yeah. that time, they've been kind of in limbo. They've been still in the world of the living as spirits. It reminds me of the movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze. Their spirits are trapped on Earth mm-hmm. at the moment. <laughs> yeah, which again, another fairly common death trope where there are several examples, like shows like Dead Like Me. One of my yeah. favorite shows of all time. It's so good. It's so good and so underrated. Again, here are these civil servant bureaucrats. Yeah. There's not just a Grim Reaper. There's actually a whole fleet of people that are responsible for getting people's souls to cross over into the afterlife. And little inside insight, my name Soul Pop that I use everywhere is from that. Like they pop your soul, oh, yeah. they just sort of, they just sort of touch you, and your huh. soul pops. And if if they don't, like if they fail at their job, which you know the main character does early on because she doesn't realize the importance. The whole thing is that like when they pop your soul out, like you don't feel anything. And mm-hmm. so if if you don't do that, like you have a horribly horribly painful death. I didn't even think about that show when I was watching this, but now it makes me want to rewatch that show even more. One thing that I thought was sort of weird about that time when they're in the ethereal, sort of like, you know, around the Missy time, is they go to the police station and they inhabit Ted's dad and sort of that commander, and they both start talking like Bill and Ted, and Ted goes into his dad, and his dad's talking, he's like, ah, I mean, my son Ted, and then he's not really getting anywhere, so Bill goes in the other guy, But what's weird is that, like, nothing comes from that scene. Like, there's a room full of cops they're talking to that clearly see, even if they can't explain what happened, something happens. And that these two really uptight, straight-laced guys start talking like surfer bros. Then all of a sudden, they're just sort of back to normal, and nothing comes of that? I understand that, you know, Bill and Ted go to hell, and we don't really see what happens on Earth, but none of the cops think this is like, they all think it's weird, but they're not like, we should probably maybe follow up on this. I hear you. I mean, the movie's short enough as it is, but it does feel like a scene that is there just to stretch for time, (laughs) in a way. You know? Like, it's a funny gag and everything, but you're right, I'd love to see them possess people for the next 20 minutes and try and get something done and I mean how funny would it be if they showed up as the dad and the other cop in front of the robots and the robots killed them too you know now what are they going to do now the bodies they've possessed have been killed so they got to try something else yeah they could have gone off on a tangent with that I'm kind of glad that we skip on and we just get straight to the exorcism but yeah it did feel a little superfluous I'm never going to complain when a movie trims the fat because there was really nothing I mean that scene maybe but there's nothing that really drags like everything here happens for a reason everything's Mm -hmm. entertaining 
But really, they get to the Battle of the Bands like an hour and ten minutes in, and I was like, this feels like the end of the movie, but I was like, there's no way that this is the end of the movie. And like, spoiler alert, it's the end of the movie. Like, that scene is five or ten minutes long, and then the credits roll. It's a short movie. Like, I don't know what I wanted to be longer. It just feels not bad, but it just feels weird that it's so short. But I guess really if the story you have to tell is 75 minutes, then just tell a 75-minute story. Yeah, that's the way I feel about it, because I'm constantly entertained watching it, and by the end of it, I don't know, it doesn't feel necessarily short or anything like that. I mean, when they get to the Battle of the Bands, it's the climax, and it is like a 20-minute climax, and in the end of the last movie, it was the performance that they gave for their history report, and that was kind of long, too. So, I mean, I expected there to be like a big stage show at the end of this. One thing that's kind of funny, though, I'm thinking of now is what we said about the cartoon, the TV show, is that they're able to go a lot of places and do a lot of things in a very short amount of time, you know, and I think that's what I'm getting at. Like, even though it's short, it's dense, and a lot actually does happen. I feel like they sort of learned, I don't know if it's like a lesson they needed to learn, but the first movie, there's so many scenes where they're just not in. Like, we have Napoleon with a little brother, and like the little brother's not even in this movie, I don't think. That there's all these scenes that don't have Bill and Ted, and people aren't really going to these movies to see the world. They're going to see the guys that they love, right? So I think that every scene is with Bill and Ted, and I think that it works. Yeah, I agree. I hate movies that are too long, so this is like right <laughs> up my alley. And I think one of my favorite scenes is when they're sent to hell and they're falling just in the blackness, <laughs> you know? And I also wonder if that was written as like a screenplay joke where it's like, dude, let's just have him fall for like three pages. <laughs> It'll be hilarious and we'll have to like write so much less. But it turns out being my favorite joke in the whole movie. Well, yeah, you don't play 20 questions. He's like, are you a mineral? Are you a tank? Whoa, good. Like, how is that? Like, I don't, like nothing about their logic makes sense, but they get each other so the fact that Bill was able to, to surmise that Ted was a tank after two questions, and the first question was, are you a mineral? And his answer was yes. It's just a delight. Like, it's just wonderful. And they do that thing where they're like yelling and yelling and yelling and yelling. And then they kind of like stop yelling and look around. And they're like, this is weird. And start yelling again. I read that when it's syndicated on television, they actually stick a commercial break in there. So it's even funnier. (laughs) That's really good. Yeah. It's also the DVD menu background video. So like I just put it on and walked away just while it was sort of loading. And then I just come back to them yelling. I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I can't wait to get to this scene. Yeah, I noticed that too, and I turned it on, and I just left it playing and watched them <laughs> fall for a couple minutes. I do like that they use the term or the phrase, 
evil uses. It reminds me sort of now, not while I was watching, but like now thinking about, you know, Scott Pilgrim, the seven evil exes. The evil uses is just this wonderful, like, it, I don't know, like, us, like, uses is not a word that anybody else would use. So I feel like if you Googled evil uses, it would just only point to this movie. And for the record, the subtitles spell it U-S-S-E-S, uses. Kind of love that. It's as if the movie is trying to introduce new words into the lexicon. They have station. Bill says duder yeah. now instead of dude. Like, it's duder. I don't know. It's just funny how Bill and Ted has always kind of played with language that way. They keep it going here. I mean, Station hasn't really caught on, but I definitely <laughs> feel like they wanted it to catch on. Not that they knew it would, but it feels like they pounded into the ground to the point where it's like, please start saying this in real life. Well, I think we talked about during the first podcast that teachers would go to Alex Winter and say, we hate that our students now talk like you, but we love mm-hmm. that their newfound interest in history. I feel like the writers were almost like, we're able to impact society. Now, let's just see specifically, let's make up like five words and just see see what happens to them. Yeah, I mean, going back to what we were talking about before with the movie being a parody of a movie that was already a parody. In this one, they do take a few of the things that I think were particularly successful and that kind of made it into the culture from the first movie and kind of turned the volume up on them a little bit. Like, there is a lot more of the air guitaring at each other. Yeah. <laughs> almost used in the same way as Station is to a certain extent. And then the other thing that I notice is the evil Bill and Ted kind of are cartoonish versions of the good Bill and Ted. The way they physically inhabit the characters and those weird head ticks, like how they make themselves bigger and twitch around. It's hard to explain, but I feel like they really turn the volume up on that a lot, but not to the extent that it's really like obnoxious and obvious. It just kind of heightens those characters to the next level. Yeah, it does a good job of distinguishing them as evil, but also copies you could get confused with the originals. Right. Like, they're about as smart as the real Bill and Ted. <laughs> their programming, their wiring doesn't seem to be crossed correctly. I don't know if Denomalous, their creator, is that great of an engineer, as much as he is a sit-up champion. But uh, <laughs> the main thing I loved about them was what distinguishes them as evil immediately is their Ray-Ban sunglasses, first of all. They're always sporting those evil shades, as I called them in my notes. And they're always trying to kill cats instead of save cats. And (laughs) saving the cat is another screenplay device where you show your hero saving a cat and you're immediately on his side. And here we have the villains like trying to kill cats, you know, land the time machine on them and hit them with their red sports car. (laughs) Men in red sports car. I mean, that's a cage in action if there's ever been one. But I think that Denomalous is, to answer your hypothetical question, I think he's actually a tremendous inventor because he came up with these two perfect clones that even toward the end of the movie, he's like, oh, I hate them. I hate the robot versions of them. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you made us, dude. You basically did too good of a job imitating Bill and Ted. If you didn't want us to be this annoying and this air guitar-y and this airheaded or whatever, you could make them look like them and sort of act like them, but then be more robotic. But like, he's such a good creator that he created these versions that he absolutely hates, which is amazing. Stop wasting time. Proceed with the plan now. Okay, dude. What do you say we trash the relationships? 
hate them. I hate the robot versions of them. You made us, dude. <laughs> yeah, and I love the robot effects. The robots look great, really cool looking. And I love the one scene in particular that shows off that they're robots really well when they're at Bill and Ted's apartment and they're playing basketball inside and they're using each other's heads into like playing gotcha head and everything like all that worked really well for me and it was all practical effects and trick camera photography and it just really sold that they're just like Bill and Ted would be if they were robots. Now there's a question that I want to ask and I'm not sure I, I'm honestly not sure what I think the answer is. There's certain scenes in this movie where because it's 1991 and computers are not where they are today they obviously have stand-ins. They have guys who look like Bill and Ted. There's the one scene where all four of them are at the apartment and they're sort of being led out, right? And so there's mm -hmm. a Bill and Ted in the front and then behind them is a Bill and Ted. And the ones in the back are obviously the stand-ins. And at one point, I'm not sure, and this is the question, I'm not sure if it's poor editing or if it's meant to sort of be like a commentary, almost like, hey, you're watching a movie. But there's one where like you sort of see the not Keanu Ted for like half a second. And like you see his face, and it's like, oh, that's not Keanu. I don't know if it's poor blocking or poor editing, or if it's meant to be sort of a wink at the camera. I don't know. You know what I mean? Because they, they do such a good job of like split screen, and whenever they can show, or whenever they have to show four faces, they do it well. I don't know if it's just me nitpicking a movie that's 25 years old, or if they're trying to say something more and trying to be a little bit funny about it. I did not notice that at all, so I cannot comment on that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice that either, but, you know, some of the effects in this aren't that great as well. Like, the mat shot of Heaven isn't especially oh the best. Some of the Yeah, some of the effects in Hell aren't awesome. I mean, just some of the matting. But all the practical stuff I felt was really on point. Like, the good robot usses that they create, like, those rule like those designs are amazing the dual design of station the stations if you will when they're two and then they form into one giant hulk-like station that's a guy in a suit and it looks like he's got a full mechanical jim henson creature shop head on him and everything i don't know i didn't catch that so i don't know if that it was wasn't like, like glaring i think it's just me sort of nitpicking and like i wasn't looking for things like that because i'm obviously enjoying the movie but i just saw it was just like oh that's not Something went wrong there. But I was also telling you that this is something that really I haven't noticed, and you've brought up on four or five podcasts before, is that Keanu has this walk. He's got this sort of swagger walk. And mm -hmm. there's the one scene, especially, where they're at that Star Trek hill or the Star Trek mountain or the desert, you know what I mean? And they're being led up before they get pushed off. And you can see the four of them down below, and it's sort of like a zoomed-out shot. And one of them walking is very clearly Keanu, and the other guy is walking, like, way, way more rigidly. And I was just like, oh, I finally see what Mike's talking about. I still haven't picked it up when Keanu's just walking, because, like, I just see him as, like, that's who he is. But when I see a Keanu next to a fake Keanu, I was like, oh, I can very clearly tell exactly what Mike brought up. Oh, that's interesting, because, like, the first thing that I think about when I think about Keanu Reeves is that walk. It's like the Denzel walk. He has a very specific and unique <laughs> thing that he employs, kind of like in most of the movies that I've seen him in. Obviously, you guys have watched significantly more than I have. I gotta look out for the Denzel swagger, but I'm just so happy you guys are seeing the walk. 
I love the character compared to Denzel's walk because the two walks could not be more different. Like, Denzel's <laughs> basically always walking like he's walking away from an explosion. Right. And Keanu yeah. was just like, I got nowhere to be. I'm just going to, like, let my body go all over the place. <laughs> I just like how you said, it's like the Denzel walk. You're comparing the two, but, like, they're very, <laughs> very, like the very, very all. different. Yeah. Going back to the good uses that they create, the whole thing is that they go with death to heaven to find the greatest inventor of all time. And it's stations, these two little... They keep calling them Martians, but I think that's just their way of saying alien, because they're just like, where else could they be from? Because death even says to them, like, you know, you really thought that the greatest inventor in the entire universe would be from Earth? And they keep calling them Martians, but the whole thing is like, they find the greatest inventor of all time, and they go and they create these robots, and compared at least to the evil uses... These good uses are just like real sort of low-key, low-tech. They're ultimately successful, but they don't look great in terms of the greatest inventor of all time. I mean, as effects, as practical effects, they're amazing. But then I realized that basically everything that they were built from was bought at like a 1991 Radio Shack, essentially. And I was like, that's actually kind of amazing that they were able to create these things out of like a vacuum cleaner and just other household goods. I might be stretching again, but the way I was looking at it was kind of like they're analog and the evil ones are digital, and this is 1991, and I almost wondered if it was another comment on sort of the music industry, where it was like, you know, vinyl's alive forever, like analog rules, and it's going to beat up digital and all that at the end of the movie, and those robots are evil. Maybe. That's interesting. I didn't even think about that at all. I also do like how... Going back to what we were talking about a while ago in terms of setting this as like a bridge to the future, is that because Dinamalos takes over every TV channel in the world, now Bill and Ted, these now guitar virtuosos, have this worldwide platform for their music. And so when they get to the Battle of the Bands, when the good uses destroy the evil uses and then they leave for 18 months to become these virtuosos, this is the beginning of why their music is known across the world and throughout the galaxy, because sort of through no fault of their own, they just have a global audience now, and it's wonderful. Yeah, I wasn't really down with the Denomalous character at first, because he just kind of comes out of nowhere. What I do like, like you said, Joey, he's there to destroy Bill and Ted, and he kind of creates Bill and Ted in the end, you know, like mm-hmm. he comes and he sets the global transmission and maybe even into deep space, we don't know. And yeah, it's his fault that they become so popular in the end. I do love how they use the villain. I just wish maybe if him and Rufus could have interacted a little more. Who was that guy? <laughs> that was Mr. Chuck Denomalos, my old gym teacher. And by the way, sit-up champion of the 27th century. I don't know if like the whole movie in a way sort of feels like a video game. Like they go to hell and there's like this adventure in hell and there's mini games sort of in hell. And then they get to the end and they beat what feels like the final boss, like they beat Evil Mm -hmm. Bill and Ted, and then, oh wait, no, the real final boss shows up, and then they have to beat him too. Like, it all sort of feels like it's a video game, especially, you know, of the time, you know, if you're playing a game on NES or SNES, and you could probably beat most of those in about the length that this movie is. So it sort of feels like... Denomalos, he's sort of the, like the emperor to Darth Vader almost, right? Like he's the real bad guy, but we don't really need to know much about him just because the main bad guy, even though he's not the head bad guy, is the evil Uses. Like their main goal is to sort of get back at them for killing them, for being mean to the princesses, for trashing their apartment. They're the main bad guy, even though they're not the head bad guy. 
like not only video games but it's very much like comic book like this one is way more stylized i feel than the first mm-hmm. film you know bill and ted seem to have a much more set uniform their clothes and just the rest of the production design seems to be a lot more vivid and definitely by the end here where you have the girls dangling by ropes and them bursting through brick walls and just total madness going on i mean the comic series may have came later but it almost feels like it was ripped from a graphic novel or something yeah they very much paid attention to everything like when we see the bill and ted university and everyone's in these crazy you know i think they were i don't know how to describe what they're wearing i think that i read that they were made out of like wetsuits but they're like these very bright neon colored sort of like 80s or early 90s clothes, but unlike anything I've ever seen anywhere, you know, whether it makes sense or whether it fits in the world, it doesn't matter. Like, it's inconsequential. The set design and the director really have, like, a vision. Like, whatever we do, we want to make sure that there's a choice being made and that Mm -hmm. it's sort of consistent throughout. What would students at Bill and Ted University be wearing? And it's this weird, hyper-stylized, neon-colored, crazy clothing. Yeah, like you said, there were very specific choices made about how the film looked at every moment. The visual design of the sets was actually based on circles, domes, and spheres. And you can see the circular theme kind of running throughout both heaven and hell. It's not super obvious, but then that, like, if you look at some of the stills, you can see it once you know that that was what they were going for. The other thing is that the shots are composed in a very much more deliberate way in this film than they were in the first one. The director of photography was Oliver Wood, which Cage Connection, he shot Face Off. Oh, oh yeah. look at that. Excellent. Yeah. I think you need to go more in that direction for this type of story. In the first movie, it felt more grounded and realistic. And we were just, you know, we were dealing with real people throughout history and they were supposed to get acclimated to the real world so everything should feel very real mm-hmm. uh, in this movie you know they're going to go into the afterlife and it's going to be very fantastical and all that so we sort of need to visually set ourselves up some way even if the audience isn't aware only at a subconscious level a difference in the look it, and it really helped what's sort of I guess coincidental maybe about Kara's mention of Face Off is that I wrote down when they were impersonating the dad, that is sort of like Face Off. Like, you have Cage acting like Travolta, and you have Travolta acting like Cage. Like, I'm sure that, to some extent, all the actors in this movie, that if you're not Bill and Ted or Rufus, really, you have to play this, like, sort of uptight counter or, like, foil to Bill and Ted. And I feel like them as actors would like to be like, look how much fun Alex and Keanu are having as Mm. Bill and Ted. Just give me a chance. Like, just let me be them for, like, (laughs) one scene. And I feel like it's sort of like Face Off, you know, where you get to see other people as these other... You know what I mean? It's just... I wrote down Face Off, so it's cool that there's a Face Off connection to this movie. It's almost making me more frustrated that they haven't possessed more people in the movie, because now (laughs) I almost want to see more actors just walk in for a scene and act like Bill or Ted for, you know, a minute or a couple seconds. Yeah, I'm glad that it was the, well, specifically Ted's dad, the other guy kind of doesn't matter, but specifically Ted's dad, because he is such an authoritarian character, he's really like, it's just the exact opposite of Bill and Ted and his whole vibe and everything is the exact opposite. So for him, of all people from the Bill and Ted universe, it's kind of like especially funny 
that this guy who is is so in control of everything at all times would totally lose control and in such a way that's so comical. Okay, dudes, I mean fellow policemen, my son, Ted Theodore Logan, and his friend, Bill S. Preston Esquire, have been murdered and replaced by evil robots from the future. You totally did it, dude. I totally possessed my dad. Okay. You gotta go over and arrest these robots so they don't ruin everything for me and Bill. I mean, uh, my son and Bill. And most importantly, they don't hurt the babes. The princesses. Oh. This isn't working. You know, I feel like when we recorded Excellent Adventure, we were just sort of so wrapped up in, like, all the quotes from the movie and everything, that we were just sort of retelling the movie. I feel here, like, you know, this movie, there's sort of, in a way, like, less to it than Excellent Adventure, but also, like, I think it tells almost like a better story. Even though it's a shorter story, I think it it's a smarter, sort of more structured, ordered story. And I think we did a pretty good job, if I may say so myself, of breaking it down. But, Carrie, is there anything else you have in your notes that you wanted to talk about or cover in this movie? Can I just read off the headlines from the yeah. end credit sequence? Yes, please. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So just in case somebody's listening to this and for whatever reason hasn't actually seen the movie, at the end, the end credit sequence, there's that kind of like spinning newspaper thing. Montage, to, right? Yeah. yeah. So some of the headlines that we get is Stallions Tour Midwest, Crop Yields Up 30%. On the cover of Billboard magazine, we see that they've hit number one. They're playing Wembley Stadium. The next one is that they are set to play the Grand Canyon. The next one is Bill and Ted Tour Mid-East, Peace Achieved. <laughs> On the cover of Science Discovery magazine, stallions use world nuclear arsenal to fuel amplifiers. Air guitar found to eliminate smog. That's my favorite one. <laughs> Reaper wins Indy 500. Quote, I didn't know I could run that fast. Which I also um, love. <laughs> yeah. Then they're on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Bill and Ted, Sportsman of the Decade. Which I do not uh, understand. You know what it might be is back to the games that they play with death. They actually oh. make a specific comment about death not being very sportsmanlike. Then the next one we see that death is to record a solo album. Death dresses for summer. The new look. Bald. This one's my favorite one. Chuck Denomalos to wed Missy. So Missy has gone from being married to Bill's dad to being married to Ted's dad now to being married to the ultimate enemy in this movie. And what I'm glad is that she's, she skips the one thing that evil Bill says, hey, future wife or whatever he calls her before he knocks her out with his evil breath. So I'm glad that they didn't have any kind of weird... Obviously, she's not going to marry <laughs> good Bill, but I'm glad that we didn't have any kind of other sort of questionable marriages, that she went for it all on marrying Denomalos. Yeah. I wondered if Denomalos still in prison and she married him while he was in jail, or is he free? What is up with that? I don't know, <laughs> but like I could totally see Missy like writing him letters in jail and like being one of those weird women. That also seems like weirdly consistent with her character. Hey, we just we just um, saw that in the Paperboy. I mean, maybe she is like oh, yeah. uh, Nicole Kidman, just marrying people in prison. John Cusack. Yeah. Then we see a headline in French that basically says, "Are Bill and Ted finished?" The next one: rumored Wild Stallion split. Dow drops six hundred points. <laughs> wild Stallion split a hoax. Dow to record high. Bill and Ted the movie. 
Yes. Uh, you know why I love that one is because they used the image from Batman the movie with Michael <laughs> Keaton and they erased Batman and they put Bill, Ted, and Death in front of the Bat computers <laughs> there. Then we see them on the cover of Spy Magazine, which is kind of renowned for like always having bad things to say about people. Quote, Bill and Ted, we have nothing bad to say about them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Grim Reaper in Lip Sync Scandal. Reaper solo album flops, rejoins Wild Stallions. And then the last one is Wild Stallions to play Mars. Station. Station. Which led me to believe that Station was a Martian, perhaps, and they were about to make contact with Mars. The only other note that I have is that apparently on set, Keanu Reeves collapsed in his trailer and was hospitalized with an arm infection. I read that. So I don't know what happened, but poor Keanu. When I found that, I didn't find like a source for that. And I was like, I need to know more about this, but I couldn't really find anything else out about it. Don't know. This seems like it would have been an exhausting shoot for them because they both have to play almost every scene and two different versions of themselves. Yeah. Got to stay healthy on those sets. Any other things in the movie that you want to talk about that we didn't get to? I had a couple real quick, if that's cool. Sure. First of all, I didn't notice it until this time, but the year in the future is 2691, which is 2691. (laughs) Uh, Callback from the first movie. The other thing is we get the van that was proposed in the original screenplay. Mm -hmm. It's not a time travel van, but Bill and Ted do cruise around in their band van all the time here. Um, Still no dog Rufus, which is cool. Uh, it's all right. We didn't know. Maybe no room for him. We, we got Pam Greer Rufus instead. That's true. That's right. Yeah. Girl Rufus. We get, I think for the first time, a young version of Keanu Reeves played by mm. another actor here, where we have young Ted in hell being scared by the bunny rabbit, yeah. by the Easter bunny. And finally, I just think that the movie proved that Bill and Ted can work beyond just time travel. Like, they really took this movie way out out there into outer space and it still works and these guys can you know i feel like in a part three we don't need to see them travel through time again we don't need to see them travel through the afterlife again let's see if we could find you know something completely new for them to go on an adventure through yeah Yeah, they might go to mars uh one last thing is that when they come back from that 16 months of intensive guitar training they come back and they actually have babies strapped to their backs yep and they named their babies after each other. That's adorable. I didn't realize in the first movie, maybe they weren't like with the princesses in the first movie, but there's a brunette princess and a blonde princess, and uh-huh. they both pair up with the same hair color. Like, Bill gets the blonde princess, and Keanu gets the brunette princess. And then they come back with babies in tow, and I don't really, really know what the babies look like, but they come back dressed basically as ZZ Top. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of everything. Like, we could spend a lot of time, I think, dissecting their family life and their appearance and all that sort of stuff, but they are virtuosos. They are the best guitarists in the world. Everything's coming up Bill and Ted. You might be a king or a little street sweeper, but sooner or later, you'll dance with the Reaper. That's the death character. The Reaper rap. Yeah. (laughs) The Reaper rap. (laughs) And over here, our bass player, the Duke of Spooks, the Dark of Shocks, man with no tan, please say hello. You might be a king or a little street sweeper, but sooner or later you dance with the Reaper. (laughs) 
our business. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Kara, for joining us. This concludes our Bill and Ted's trilogy. You will be back at some point if the third movie ever happens. You are definitely invited back years down the line. We, I mean, we might still be doing this because the pace of Keanu Club is so much slower than Cage, and he's still, you know, Keanu, it seems like, just as prolific as Cage, if not more so. I mean, he's got like six movies coming out this year, it seems like. So he might keep us going through all of next year, and... You know, we might do Bill and Ted 3 in real time, so thank you for the three that you've done, and we'll see you back for a fourth if it ever happens. Oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me. So for all things Keanu Club and Cage Club and Zack Attack and Monkey Club and all sorts of stuff, you can go to facebook.com slash cageclub or cageclub.me, and you can find out about everything that we're doing. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manson. And that was Kara O'Regan, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. Yeah.